As a business that happens to be a law firm, we're all about service and attention to detail. Our clients deserve efficient and well-informed legal counsel. That's why we're sitting down to discuss pressing legal topics with subject matter experts and industry leaders. Because at Daryl Everett, we put the DE in deal makers. With us today is Noah Rosenfarb, advisor to the half percent, tax strategist, founder of Freedom Family Office, a registered investment advisory firm, author of the book Exit, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, and Dealmaker. Noah just recently closed his 50th real estate deal, which put Noah and his team at over 900 million in deals. Noah, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate you being here. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, tell us how you got started and where you are now. Sure. Well, I'm a third generation CPA. I followed in my father and grandfather's footsteps and started working with my dad at his small accounting firm, which I helped him scale and eventually sell. Then I started a family office for divorced women, one of the first in the country. And then I ultimately sold that in 2014. And I was a professional investor. I uh, didn't have an operating business for a number of years, but in 2019, late 2019, uh, right before COVID, I had decided to partner with my now co-founder in Freedom Family Office to build what we believe is the only of its kind family office for eight-figure net worth entrepreneurs. And we've, over the course of COVID, built a virtual firm, and we're now a team of 20 accountants, lawyers, and financial planners. That's amazing, especially the transition during COVID to virtual reality that we all live in these days. Yeah. So you advise entrepreneurs on tax strategies before the sale of their business, correct? When is generally the right time to start thinking about the strategies and come speak to somebody like you? Sure. So I think it's never too early to start. Actually, when you form your company is a good time to start. A lot of entrepreneurs are unaware of Section 1202, which allows them, if they're properly structured as a C corporation in the right industry, to avoid up to $10 million dollars. Uh, of capital gain for each individual founder owner. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't even know that that's an option because when they go to their accountant to form their company, they automatically form an LLC taxed as an escort. So, you know, if you didn't do that and now you're, you're this LLC taxed as an S and, you know, all that income's flowing through to you personally, you want to make sure you're spending at least one year, hopefully two tax years prior to a transaction designing your strategy. And the benefit of giving you that separation between your tax structuring that you do prior to a sale and the year of the sale. So you'd have at least one or two tax periods between that planning. A lot of startups, newer businesses always taxed as an S-Corp because they think that's the way to go for taxation purposes. So I, I've heard you speak about helping clients avoid the 100% capital gain taxes. I know that's not useful for every type of entity. Um, and I, I heard you talk, you, know, you use your proprietary strategy. To the extent you can discuss, what does that structure look like? You just touched upon it a little bit. So I think that, yeah, just to kind of zoom out for a moment. So everyone that has a desire to pay less in taxes needs to understand what is their audit risk tolerance? How willing are they to defend themselves in an audit? Do they only wanna take positions 
that are 100% black and white supported by case law. A lot of the entrepreneurs that we work with, they're used to and comfortable taking risks in their business. And when it comes to their taxes, they're relying on the advice of their tax preparing CPA to guide them as to what they should and shouldn't report to the government. And unfortunately, a lot of those accountants have a much more conservative approach to risk tolerance. So I would say start there. And then the second is your tolerance for complexity. A lot of the planning that we do for our clients can get very complicated. It requires additional tax returns, additional compliance costs, and of course, understanding things that you don't know before you meet with a team like ours. And that's not right for every entrepreneur. Some people want to just keep their head down, focus on their business, make more money. And if that means that they'll pay more taxes, they'd rather have simplicity. So I heard you talk kind of and you touched upon it here, the differences between a CPA and a tax strategist. I don't think you would consider yourself a CPA uh, as most people define that term. Kind of explain the difference and, you know, your approach to it. Yeah. And so I'm... I'm educated and licensed as a CPA. And what's most interesting about CPAs is that the license allows you to audit businesses and issue audited financial statements. But once an entrepreneur gets to about a million dollars a year or more of taxable income, or they begin operating in multiple states or, or operating multiple types of businesses, they usually want to meet with a tax strategist. Most often, tax strategists come up through uh, uh, an education in tax law, and so they operate as tax attorneys. And then me, myself, because I have developed deep expertise in tax law, predominantly to protect my own family, and then later in life to help others, uh, I find that you know I love ideating on what's possible for entrepreneurs when they're willing, as I mentioned, to tolerate some complexity and some audit risk. Okay, that's related to my question about Puerto Rico where you initially started that off for yourself. You took a major risk and you know, you'll know you delve into the details of this. For two years, you saw no return. And then you know now you utilize. So tell us about this approach, the strategy. You know This one I think you can share with us, right? Yeah, this one's uh, I'm comfortable sharing. So in 2012, the island of Puerto Rico uh, announced a new tax incentive for a 4% corporate tax rate for businesses that were willing to relocate to the island. Uh, they didn't do a great job marketing because as someone that feels like they have their ear to the ground, I didn't know about it until 2014. And so when I first learned of this, I thought, man, this is really an amazing opportunity for the right person. I'm living in South Florida. I have been since 2011. And I didn't want to move my family, which was the easiest way to take advantage of that tax code. And so I spent two years. I collaborated with another uh tax strategist that's based out of the U.S. Virgin Islands. And we created what we found was the first ever dual qualified 401k plan that utilizes a ROBS structure, R-O-B-S, rollover business startup. And my Puerto Rico C Corporation, which pays a 4% tax, is owned by my Roth 401k plan. And what that means is when my business, let's say, generates a million dollars of income, we have to pay 40000 of Puerto Rico tax. And when we make a $960,000 dividend distribution, that dividend goes into my Roth 401k plan. And because it's a 401k plan, it doesn't pay tax on dividends. So the 960000 gets put into my 401k plan account. Let's say I invest that in a mix of private debt 
and I get interest on my private loans that I make. Well, there's no tax on the interest income because it's inside of a 401k. Uh, perhaps I might invest in a business. Uh, that business could be publicly traded or privately held. But if that business is sold and there's a capital gain, there's no capital gains tax because, again, it's in my Roth 401k. Uh, same would be true, obviously, for publicly traded stocks and bonds. And then eventually, when I turn 59 and a half, I'm 47 now, I could take that money out tax-free. So uh, the good structure that I've created enables me to pay a 4% effective, effective tax rate on my income just once and never again. So depending on whether or not you can source your income to Puerto Rico, that would kind of design the structure of taking advantage of what's now called Act 60 with the 4% corporate tax rate. But you can do this in the state of Florida. You could do this in any of the 50 states. And this structure can still benefit you because, again, if you're paying the corporate tax, the federal corporate tax right now is 21%. Some states have a corporate tax. But when you issue that dividend and the owner is a 401k plan, you're not going to pay the dividend tax. So versus an S-Corp where you're distributing all that income to yourself personally, where you're paying likely a 37% federal tax, now you're reducing that to 21%. So you're picking up a 17% tax savings, even if you're going to base your company in the U.S. Adaptable and flexible with the ever-changing environment. So thankfully, the IRS, uh, they, they produce a couple of lists that might be of interest to our listeners. One is the Dirty Dozen list. And this is a list of items of interest that the IRS issues a warning to taxpayers not to participate in transactions that are they identify each year as part of this Dirty Dozen. And, uh, and then if, if they kind of continue on further and, and people are continuing to implement those uh, strategies, they may become a listed transaction. And a listed transaction is the IRS's way of saying, hey, we want to make sure we know if you've participated in this type of transaction. So you need to check a box on your tax return. And so for me, I just have that as my guidebook in addition to the tax law to say, okay, here are all the things that the IRS has already identified that are problems with people that utilize this ROB structure. And let's just make sure we're compliant. And the same is true for the other strategies that we utilize. The idea is to ensure that you're continuously not only complying with the letter of the law, but also trying to address the spirit of the law as well. Sure, you utilize that strategy for your clients and entrepreneurs as they approach exits. So segueing into, you know, your your tax strategies, can you discuss how real estate serves not just as investment vehicle, but also a nuanced tax strategy and how you you have utilized these strategies uh, as an investment vehicle yourself. Yeah. So I, I mentioned I have this Puerto Rico C Corporation where I only pay 4% tax, but I also have a U.S. business. Our family office business is based in the U.S. and generates U.S. taxable income for me personally. But I'm a real estate professional, as, as you referenced earlier. I just closed my 50th transaction. I've been a real estate professional since the turn of the century. And what that enables me to do as a real estate professional is offset my real estate losses with my ordinary income. So as a result, I've paid you know nearly no U.S. federal tax for a number of years. 
because I've been active in buying new real estate assets. When you acquire a new real estate asset, you often take accelerated depreciation and bonus depreciation through what's called a cost segregation study. And as a result, when you invest in the equity of a real estate transaction, because there's likely going to be debt involved as well, oftentimes you can get 60 to often even 100% of your equity investment as a write-off in that current year. So that's been an amazing strategy, I think, offsetting their ordinary income with real estate losses. Yeah, and generally they optimize tax benefits via 1031 exchanges, which I'm sure know you're very familiar with and uh, the cost segregation, accelerated depreciation, et cetera. So uh, I know you've answered some questions about REITs versus you know direct investments. So how do you compare the two and what's your over, overview of it? So I tend to stay focused on private real estate investments. Uh, myself, individually, I syndicate real estate investments. So I take uh, an opportunity that I find of interest for my family that we want to invest in. And then I share that with my network of investors and friends to see who else would like to join me. They become limited partners in a partnership. And unlike myself as an active real estate professional, most of our investors are passive investors. They own businesses, they focus on growing their business, and they take their capital and they want to invest it for income and growth. When they receive the K-1 from their partnership that they've invested in, they may have losses on that K-1. And unlike me, they can't use those losses to offset their ordinary income, but they can use it to offset real estate income. So if they're investing consistently in real estate and sometimes they sell assets and they don't take advantage of Section 1031, which is the tax-free exchange rules, then they can use those losses to offset their gains. When you're a REIT investor, often REITs are either publicly traded or privately listed. You don't have the optionality of deciding when to invest in which particular assets. You're usually making a lump sum investment into a structure where the manager is going to select all the assets that go into the REIT. And so my entrepreneurial clients, they tend to like having a little bit more control. And so whether I'm doing a deal in Brownsville, Texas, and they want that type of an asset or one in Canton, Michigan, you know, they, they, which is a, a pref equity deal, you know, they get the optionality of making the choice themselves for which deals they like and how much they want to allocate. So let, let's talk about those deals that you just mentioned, the Brownsville one, you know, there's three main deals I'd like to discuss. Um, and then first, if you can start us off as to how you scaled your portfolio to this extent, and then, you know, we'll, we'll discuss the Brownsville one, Canton, and then the Cincinnati one as well. And I'd like to understand the differences between those three deals, kind of obstacles you have encountered, how they're structured differently, your approach to each one of them. If you could just, I know that was a lot in one question, if you could just take them, take us through yeah, it. Sure. I'll, I'll start by sharing how we built this portfolio. So I mentioned I started investing in real estate at the turn of the century. That was my wife and I bought a two-family home before we got married. We lived in half and we rented half. A cute story there is I got $40 at the closing table. At the time, the uh, lenders would allow for a closing credit. And in addition, the uh, lenders would loan up to 97% 
of the acquisition price. And so we basically were able to get that deal done with not only no money down, but like I mentioned, $40 paid to us at closing by having the seller give us a closing credit. Uh, and then we, we renovated that two family. Uh, it was a single family home. We made it into a two family. We rented half. We lived in half. And then we took the equity out of that house as values went up, used that for a down payment on another two family house, uh, used the rental income to service the debt, eventually took out another line of credit to buy our, our next you know multifamily house. And so while my wife and I were building a local portfolio nearby where we lived in New Jersey, our goal was to get to 20 units that we'd be able to pay the debt off over the course of 20 or 30 years, and we could retire on the rent of the 20 units that we held. But what happened after the great financial recession in 2007 was we wanted to move to Florida. We didn't think building the portfolio in the same way was going to make sense as my career was developing and the opportunity I had to not only invest our own capital, but to invest other people's capital became more obvious. And so in 2011, I started aggregating funds to buy larger assets in other people's deals. So I've never selected those large scale deals. I never went out with a, a commercial real estate broker to identify a piece of real estate I wanted to buy. I always found that there were people out there hustling to find the best opportunity in their local market, and then they needed equity capital to help close the deal. So that became my focus in 2011. I uh, did a number of syndications, then started a fund. Uh, fund deployed investments over 18 different assets across a four-year time frame. And then when that fund ended, things had felt frothy to me in our marketplace. They, they have since 2018. And what I wanted to do was return control to the individual investor as opposed to the fund structure. And so I've been syndicating individual real estate investments since then. One of those three deals that we discussed, the Brownsville, Canton, Cincinnati. Um, I know sure. uh, Canton one had had a couple obstacles you and I had previously discussed. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I have three deals that we're in the midst of making right now. Our first that I'd share is an 80-unit motel to apartment conversion in Brownsville, Texas. So I'm longtime friends with Richard Wilson, the founder of Family Office Club, and uh, Richard, someone who I respect and admire, we've had a longstanding relationship, and he sees a ton of deal flow as the head of a 4,000-member group, many of whom are actively investing in real estate. And he met two young, aggressive, hungry uh, entrepreneurs that were focused exclusively on Motel 2 apartments, and he became a partner in their business. And they found this opportunity in Brownsville, Texas. They're seller financing from the existing seller. One of the unique things about this marketplace of motels is that the financing is generally not readily available. And so a lot of these deals take place with seller financing. And so for us, in an environment with high interest rates, where especially bridge debt, construction debt, you're paying you know anywhere from 10 to 11% in today's market, we decided that beyond the seller financing, and there was a little bit of bank financing that was going to be able to be held in place, we were going to finance this with 75% equity. And we did that really because of where we stand right now with interest rates. Typically, I like a lot of leverage, but uh, not so much in today's market. So we're going to be spending about $4 million to convert this motel into an apartment complex. 
one of the good benefits of that is as we convert it, we'll get it rezoned. The, the rezoning is relatively simple. The town is much happier to have an uh, apartment building than they are a motel. So that's an easy conversion that then enables us when we stabilize the asset to refinance with the multi-family loan, which tends to be a lot cheaper, as I mentioned, than a, a motel loan. And hopefully we'll get all of our capital out in about 15 to 18 months after we start our renovations, which are just about to kick off and, uh, and stabilize that asset. And either we can generate high cash on cash yields or we can exit it for a high IRR. So, you know, we'll wait and see what the strategy looks like as we get through to the end of our renovation period. So you mentioned, you know, renovations, things like that. How have rising interest rates impacted your investment strategies, especially with completing renovations? Yeah, I, th I think I'll sh share this story about our Canton, Michigan deal as it relates to that question. So we're now investing in preferred equity for a 730-unit multifamily apartment complex in, in Canton, Michigan, which is in the Detroit MSA. And what happened there was really a function of rising interest rates. And this has happened in my portfolio as well for acquisitions that we made in late 2020 and, and going into 2021 and 22 where we acquired a building with a value-add improvement plan using construction financing uh, and bridge financing where you have variable rate debt. And obviously, as interest rates rise, that cost of the mortgage goes up every month. And the result is that many of these properties that were acquired between 2020 and 2022 with you know, non-conventional bridge financing, they have the same challenge. So you only have a certain amount of dollars to make improvements and you only have a certain amount of dollars to service your debt because you're going to need to stabilize your property. And until it's stabilized, there's not enough cash flow to both renovate and service the debt. So what happened is a lot of people, myself included, as I mentioned, have gotten stuck in this pickle where they're close to completing their renovations, but they're not quite finished. They can't get to their target occupancy to get fixed rate funding at a good, attractive rate. And so they need some additional equity capital to finish off their value-added improvement plan. And so one of our partners, GSH Group, a group that we've done some additional business with, they have this massive project that they acquired at the end of 2021, and they got caught in this pickle. So they needed about $7.5 million just to finish things off and get them to a point where they can refinance. Now, because... They're not the only person with this need because investors right now are very concerned about the use of their cash and investing their cash. A lot of people don't really want to part with their liquidity unless they're getting a very attractive return profile. So what we were able to negotiate was not only will our investors get a 15% annualized return on the capital that they invest in this preferred equity transaction, but in addition, when the asset sells, they'll get an extra 15% payment. So this particular project, we expect to take about 15 months between the time of our preferred equity investment and the time it's sold and we get repaid. And so between the 15% annualized return and the 15% bonus, it's a 27% target IRR deal. Obviously, that IRR will go down if, if we have to hold the asset longer, but we believe that this preferred equity position is in a good spot where there's a lot of coverage at a reasonable fair market value price that we expect the, 
asset to sell for in, you know, 2025, 2024, 2025. What kind of approach uh, would you have moving forward? Does this shift your strategies? Yeah, I would say it shifts what we're looking for. It shifts how we're financing acquisitions, not just with the percentage of equity versus the percentage of debt, also where we are in the capital stack. So, you know, finding these preferred equity investments are attractive to us at the moment, especially this kind of rescue equity where we're coming in to help finalize and complete a value add strategy. Uh, and then we, we're um, looking right now at acquiring uh, another asset in the Cincinnati market. And there we would get fixed rate financing where typically there's a value added improvement plan on that asset. Typically we would have financed that with bridge financing in the past. Now we're looking at fixed rate financing and then additional equity. So we're, we'll just have more equity in the deal in some of these cases on a go forward basis, which makes the infinite return strategy that much harder. Mm -hmm. But I think you know, right now, from a risk profile standpoint, I think our investors and, and my family itself, we don't mind taking less risk during this uncertainty and volatility and rising rates and rising inflation. We can dial back our risk, but we still want to be allocating to investments and not just holding cash for a 5% yield. So, you know, you've done six deals. What, what are some of your key takeaways from this milestone? Uh, one key takeaway for me was to focus on my strengths. So when I was operating these individual assets that I was acquiring directly, I came to a conclusion that my return on time was not good. And that's a concept that a lot of entrepreneurs aren't thinking about is return on time. And for me, when I had a portfolio of, of these you know, apartment units and started noticing that some of the weeknight evenings I had to go and deal with tenants or on a weekend I had to run to Home Depot or show a, an apartment unit. I, I added up all of that time and I multiplied it by the hourly rate I was generating at my day job as a CPA. And when I deducted that from my net operating income and from the cash flows I was receiving and I paid myself my hourly rate, I was left with just a few percent that I was earning on my investment. And that kind of startled me and made me realize that I was just trading my time in another way. And I probably would be better off taking that time and investing it in my career to increase my income in my career. And then I noticed at the same time that the syndicators that my accounting firm had worked with, that they were producing returns that were similar to mine, but their investors had no effort that they had to put in besides their upfront due diligence. And so that helped me transition to becoming more of a capital allocator and fundraiser, which really did suit my strengths and where my return on time continues to increase to this day. That's great. So that strategy, do you advise these growth companies in, the, in a similar approach? Do you have a lot of you know strategies that would qualify for both the real estate for yourself and these growth funds back to the opportunity fund? So... Most of the growth oriented companies that we're working with, the entrepreneurs that are running them, you know, they have to decide whether they want to continue to concentrate to create their wealth inside their company, or it's time for them to diversify and protect their risk and, you know, 
take some chips off the table and spread it around so that they can protect their family and the wealth they've created. And I would say that's the biggest decision an entrepreneur has to make is when they want to do that. And often what I most frequently think is entrepreneurs aren't thinking about that. And so we, we encourage our clients to be a little bit more methodical in how they approach the value of the equity in their companies and when it's time to liquidate that equity, either in whole or in part. Think a lot about exit strategies. Can you speak to your own exit strategies with each deal you go into? Is it the same, you know, that 15 to 18 month sweet spot that we talked about? You know, one of them you mentioned 2025, a little bit longer. What, what does that look like for you? And how do you assess and manage risk? So typically, ideally, if I had my you know way about it, I would like to own assets for generations. Uh, my my business partner in my real estate division, you know, his grandfather bought a building in Manhattan, and now it's worth four hundred million dollars, and it it serves the needs of many families that get distribution of income from that property, and. That's a great legacy asset to leave behind to, to help future generations with their education and health and maintenance and support. And so I'd love to be in a position to own assets for the long run. I would say the challenge is that, that the IRR, the rate of return that you generate on an investment, especially a value-add investment, goes down over time. And as a result, as someone who's allocating other people's capital, it often makes more sense to turn over the assets and generate the high IRR returns, give people their capital back, and then let them decide if they want to go into another deal where they could potentially generate a high return as well. So I think my personal desire to have a long-term asset and income coming from real estate and my professional desire to have clients that want to see their money back in their hands, that want to have that capital gain experience to give them confidence to do more deals they're a little bit at odds with one another. And our fee model in our industry also gravitates towards selling. So most of the money that we make in putting together deals comes when we sell the asset. And that's true across the industry. And as a result, there's a little bit of a misalignment of incentives between a long-term hold and the short-term hold. Uh, so if investors want a long-term hold, often they have to do it on their own. Makes sense. And, you know, you mentioned a lot of your investors are passive, which I guess makes it a little bit easier for you. I, I assume you're a GP in most of your deals. Is there ever a time where you take the backseat in these investments? So we're always taking a backseat to our operating partners. As I mentioned, we don't go into a local market to identify assets to acquire. We're always partnering with an individual that boots on the ground, that has their infrastructure, that has their relationships, and they're looking for equity capital. So in that respect, we're always a limited partner to our operating partner that's going to control the deal, make decisions around what rent increases they might make, when they're going to evict tenants and when they're going to bring on Section 8 tenants and when they're going to you know, work with the local charities and churches to bring in tenants that might have subsidized rent. We have conversations with all of our operating partners around those decisions, but we let them control it because we find the right partner is going to have more information and, and more skill in making that decision. Where we control our investor capital is really on the timing of which deals we want to do, when do we want to do them, and who we want to do them with. Of course, that relationship that's going to be 
the day. So the last question, if you could leave our audience with one piece of advice, what would that be? A lot of our audience are in that half percent. I would say you need to know where your effort is going to get a greatest return on time. And most people are focused on what's on their calendar, but not as much focused on what's important to put on their calendar. And sometimes tax strategies, the most important thing to put on your calendar because you could get a great payoff. Sometimes it's thinking through whether you should be doing acquisitions to grow your business or pursuing exit planning to sell your business and diversify. Sometimes it's really thinking about your family relationships and how to nurture and invest in them and making sure that you're not letting your calendar get filled with so many evenings and weekend appointments in the quest of making more money and doing more business that you're neglecting your relationships at home. That's great. Thank you for that. Everybody, Noah Rosenfarb. Noah, can you leave us with your website? So where everybody can find all the uh, resources you mentioned and then your book is on Amazon as well as on your website, correct? Uh, Yeah, at freedomfamilyoffice.com. You can learn about our family office. If you wanted to speak with someone from our team, you could go to talktofreedom.com. You fill out a short intake form and that'll get you on a call with my co-founder, Peter, and our client relationship manager, Keisha, and they'll walk you through our process for helping you become rich beyond money as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Noah. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.